Hello and welcome to the Auto Buyer's Guide podcast powered by Alex on Autos. I'm Tim. He's Alex. Alex, recent drives, hot takes, get us started. Yeah, so if you haven't checked out the Alex on Autos channel, we recently posted a video review of the GLE 53. Uh, and I'm going to be curious. We're going to talk about this, I think, circle it around a little bit later. But I'm curious what you think about this being the 21st century E-Class sedan, because it was the GLE Coupe. Uh, you know, so uh, GLE Coupe, GLE, you know, what's, what's kind of the take here? Is the GLE the modern station wagon and the GLE Coupe is the modern sedan? Uh, am I wrong? I, I think you're right. I would say this. First of all, the GLE, for those who are not familiar with this vehicle, a million years ago, it launched as the original Mercedes-Benz SUV. It was the ML back in mm -hmm. 1998. And it was the car most emblematic of the rot that occurred under Jürgen <laughs> Yeah. I mean, and it was a very different vehicle then than today. You know, it actually was a body on frame thing. It looked funky, though. Everything about it was weird. Yeah. Including the parts that were detachable unintentionally. That was a big problem. Mm -hmm. uh, cars aren't supposed to come apart like Legos. Yeah. But over time, rebranding made this the GLE. And it's true. You now have a regular SUV and a sort of a coupe SUV. Thank you, BMW six, uh, X6 series. Yeah, I blame um, BMW. Yeah. Although, although actually Mercedes started it with the sedan coupe thing, but whatever. No, that's true. It, is, it has been an escalating arms war. This is the best-selling product for Mercedes-Benz. We're in an era mm -hmm. when, oddly, everyone else makes their money with compact SUVs. This one's a midsize. So on that yeah. basis, between the volume and the meat of the market factor, yes, this is the new E-Class. It's the descendant of, like, the 190Es that you could buy in the 80s and the god-awful W210s of the 1990s. It's better than that, though. It's Yeah. What's, what's kind of intrigued me about the GLE Coupe specifically is that my local Mercedes dealer, mind you, this is a survey of one, which I usually hate, they sell more GLE Coupes than they do E-Class sedans at this one dealership. And that intrigued me. Also, if you really squint, I mean, if you look at them from a distance, you squint, you could see that the GLE Coupe looks just like a sedan. It's got that little trunk lid kind of thing yeah, at the back. Yeah. Um, it definitely has this stretchy profile. And back when BMW was offering like a 3 Series GT, remember that? The, they had the 3 Series, the 3 Series oh, GT, yeah. and they had the uh, the X4. And I, I, you look at them and you're like, okay, what's the difference? I mean, these are all just such subtle variations on this same sedan profile. What, what's the thing going on here? Um, and what it what occurs to me finally, my final thought on this is, this is the sedan for the 21st century because people want a practical liftback, and now we have an excuse to buy a liftback because it's a SUV or crossover, whatever we want to call it. So that helps justify that. And then cafe regulations, you actually get a bit of a bump if you do a lifted sedan thing because the moment you have the right kind of clearance and angles, etc., and you could call it a truck you get a different cafe rating, you know, you're in a different cafe rating envelope. So those two things together kind of make me scratch my head on these things. And if you look at it that way as a slightly more practical lifted off-roady sedan rather than a compromised crossover, it makes a bit more sense. You know, what I think it really is, is it's a weird hybrid because I think the SUV coupe genre 
has taken over the space once occupied by personal luxury coupes. Mm -hmm. Remember when we had those Lincoln Mark 8, Cadillac Eldorado, uh, to an extent the Toyota, you know, SC300, SC400 during, or Toyota Lexus SC400 during the 90s. Yeah. I feel like this lifestyle oriented, but still reasonably practical vehicle is either a continue of that weird, like thread of American automotive history, or in some ways, it harks back to the era of the CLK when that was like a lifestyle coupe based on the E-Class. Mm -hmm. I don't think in this day and age, there is still a market for that kind of a vehicle in the mass market. The person who wanted that back in the 90s, back in the early 2000s when it was new, that person today goes with the GLE coupe. And, and I think that's really the person, the person who's willing to sacrifice some practicality for style. And then the standard GLE is literally like, it's 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 the E-Class sedan, yes, but it's also got a little bit of the utility of the old <laughs> and no longer offered E-Class wagons. Yeah, somewhere in there. And in the mainstream, you know, personal luxury coupe thing, I suppose maybe you could consider a Supra there. I just drove the Supra manual transmission. It was the other thing that we did this last week. Well, there's a, another one coming up after that, but Supra manual transmission, which uh, offends so many Toyota fans because it is really just a BMW. Uh, but I think that's the best part of it, oddly enough. I mean, if you want a BMW, but you want a Toyota dealer network and you like the styling of the Supra, which has grown on me since it was first launched, to be honest. And more importantly, if you want a manual transmission, now you have that particular option. And uh, I'm going to probably offend some BMW folks here, but I prefer the way Toyota tunes the steering on the Supra versus the Z4. Um, that shouldn't be too much of a surprise because if you've read anything about Lexuses, the Lexus IS, the GS, and the LS generally have really good steering feel compared to the BMWs. It's just that the rest of it doesn't do anything as well as the BMW, but the steering was good. So this is kind of a, a, an interesting combo here. And then Toyota was responsible for the manual transmission adaptation. We don't know which manual it is. It may have been a Jetrag. It may have been a ZF. We don't know. Uh, but all we know is that Toyota was the one that actually did all of the engineering work. So they're responsible for the feel, the uh, the shift throw length, the clutch pedal feel. All of that is 100% Toyota. Um, and there again, I was strangely impressed. I had expected it to feel more like a BMW manual. And the way the Supra's manual is set up, I prefer its clutch pedal feel and the manual transmission shifter feel to what we find in, in BMW's M line at the moment. The, the very few that still have a manual. And I apologize to E-Class wagon fans. I think that one is still soldiering on. Uh, but yeah, but only the only the off-roady ones. So yeah, same. Yeah, that, that, that's true. It's 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 got to have like at least some level of body cladding and like a 0.5-inch <laughs> lift and all those things. Uh, but yeah, the Super is an interesting car because it's not like personal luxury coupe in the standard of you know in the tradition of the old Eldorado. Right. Have a back seat. You know, it, it's never going to be mistaken as a family car, and you could use those old coupes for young kids. This is like more of an out-and-out -out sports car, and I find it interesting that Toyota all of a sudden is all about weird niche performance mm -hmm. models, like up and down the line. The RAV4 Prime is now a fast RAV4. It's actually interesting. We've got the Supra. We've got the GR Corolla. We've got a 300 horsepower Camry. Uh, yeah. I think it's it's interesting because it portends a larger trend for the 2020s. We might be entering like a golden era of Toyota performance. And I'm okay with the BMW roots. If the experience is there, I think if you told me back in the 1990s, like when the A80 Supra was at its peak, that the next Supra would basically be a reskinned BMW with powertrain to match, I would have thought that's mm -hmm. great. Uh, Toyota prices 
Toyota warranty and a BMW performance car. I don't understand why it gets slagged down. If you inverted yeah. those things and made a BMW on a Toyota platform, like a Mercedes on an Infiniti, you know, I, I could see rage there, but I don't understand. I mean, we're going to get a BMW hydrogen vehicle with a Mirai fuel cell. I'm fine Produ with that. Production started today. So, so yeah, those super fans can get back at Toyota by knowing that. Here, here's the real question. What is the super's natural rival, if not the Z? Because if you take ah. the Z out of the question, it's almost a class of one. And I'm not sure the uh, Z Porsche. is the natural rival. Porsche. Really? Boxster Cayman was the design envelope. So uh, Z4 was designed to be the convertible Porsche competitor and the Supra at the hard top, which is why supposedly we will never see a convertible Supra and we will never find a hard top Z4 uh, because the agreement between the two companies was that they were going to target Porsche and the 714, 718, whatever the number is these days. And, uh, and, and but they were going to, one was going to focus on the convertible, one was going to focus on the, the coupe and together they would tag team Porsche. Uh, so yeah, it is interesting because I, I prefer just about everything about the Supra over the Z with the exception that the Z is 100% Nissan. So arguably it's more impressive and I should, I would give it more deference for that reason alone because Nissan actually did it themselves. Uh, well with the Mercedes transmission, but whatever. And the, the Supra is built in the Magnesteer factory in Austria. It uses almost no Toyota parts other than their design on the transmission for the manual model and Toyota's tuning of the suspension. Now, it did use a whole lot of Toyota's cash, and that's probably the key here. Uh, the way that this has been explained by both BMW and Toyota is that they went into this. BMW had already semi-started development and then shelved it because it was way too expensive. And then Toyota came along and said, hey, we need a Supra. Let's work on this together. Um, how about we send you some billions of dollars? And BMW said, sure, why not? They resurrected the development. And at this point, Toyota, being very pragmatic, as they tend to be, said, you know, it makes more sense rather than trying to create Frankenstein's monster to just pull from one company's parts bin as much as possible to drop development costs since they were paying the bill. And that was BMW's parts bin because Toyota did not have an inline six to use. Um, they did not have transmissions that they thought were well adapted to the performance characteristics that they wanted in the vehicle. And they didn't have any platforms that could be shrunk that much. Uh, so they didn't have the IS platform, et cetera, they thought was too big and too heavy. So they wanted something that was smaller. And uh, the BMW platform that the Z is on was able to be shrunk as much, and it was further along in its development. So there we go. Yeah, because I'll be honest, I've driven a 370, and everyone I know who's driven the new Z, so I'm pretty familiar with the platform. Everyone I know who's driven the new Z has come away underwhelmed. I don't think it's a natural competitor with the Supra. I think attempting to compare the mm -hmm. two is shoehorning two similar-looking things together because you yes. think they Japanese performance coupes. But every single person who's gotten behind the wheel has said the Supra feels like it has 60 more horsepower. Oh, for yeah. sure. You don't crunch the synchros moving through you know, mm -hmm. second and third gear. It gets its power down better. Everything about the vehicle is superior. And a generation ago, you could have called a car like this a competitor to a Corvette. Now I really do think the non-911 Porsches are the best comparison. That's a good point there. Yeah, the, uh, the Z comes across as a little heavy, uh, a little unrefined. But it is uniquely Nissan, 100% Nissan. Absolutely, no one's going to think it's something else. 
And it does have a really aggressive sticker price, which is the big thing. So, you know, 400 horsepower, admittedly 400 horsepower in the Z is not going to get you to 60 as fast as the under 300 horsepower in the Supra. Keep that in mind. Very important. Parentheticals, the under 400 So manual transmission, manual, automatic, automatic, doesn't matter how you slice it. The the Supra is going to be faster and it's going to feel more nimble. But the Z is really, really well-priced and that alone is a, a solid reason to buy it. So I'm not a Z hater by any stretch. I do think the Supra is better, however, but it ought to be because it costs a lot more. So, you know, it it goes without saying that it makes sense. I will say this. It becomes less of a buy when you add the performance package. That's true. Yeah. Anyone comparing this to a three liter straight six Toyota Supra is going to have to add the price of the performance package, which takes this well into the 50s. And basically closes whatever price gap the Toyota had. Although the Supra was, you know, will go over 60. You know, the special edition manual transmission model that they were, uh, you know, talking about and that I got to drove at the event was 65. So you're still 15 grand more. That's true. But I think at that point, you ask, like, why not spend a few more thousand dollars to get a qualitatively better car? I mean, if you you think about all of the chassis developments Mm -hmm. that are implicit in the like near 20 year. Youth oh, yeah. Year. Like you, you trace the 370 back to the 350 back to the early 2000s, you start realizing what you're paying for. And the premium for the Toyota makes sense. Mm-hmm. I think Akio Toyota is the reason that Toyota is now doing what they're doing, because he only became president about 12 years ago. So he's the one that started the project that we see today in GR becoming a sub brand, TRD moving to trucks rather than being the everything. So, you know, more powerful Camrys with with wings and things. That is Akio because he is very, very, very into racing and he is willing to bend bend the, the, the thing that is Toyota, the immovable, unbendable object. He's trying to bend it to his will. So GR Corolla, I think, is probably the first good example of what Akio has been up to because this is 100% Toyota and 100% bonkers. Yeah, that's a, a good statement. Point. A statement that never made sense before. Like, when was the last time any of us ever said a bonkers Toyota Supra? Sure, but it's a BMW. You know, GR86. Eh, you know, it's okay, but it's a Subaru. But this, this is just Toyota doing 300 horsepower out of a 1.6 liter three cylinder turbo, a 70 percent rear power bias across a wide range of operating conditions, not just select conditions like we find in, in say, a Subaru product. Um, this is more like, uh, you know, the uh, the, the Mitsubishi um, uh, that I'm totally forgetting from the 90s. They're, they're, they're hot sedan, the Lancer, Lancer Evos. Yes. It's more like that all-wheel drive setup in its ability to send power to the rear than an STI, for instance absolutely crazy and they jammed it all in a wide body corolla that shares not a lot oddly with the regular corolla headlights taillights the hatch is the same but basically everything else is different front doors same but it has wider body more structural reinforcement more welds more adhesive and quadrupling the number of welds versus a regular corolla is no small feat because that requires a lot of a lot of structural changes and calculations to the way the unibody goes together and where you put the welds and where you don't put the welds, et cetera. So it's a quite an expensive project for a vehicle that may sell under 10,000 units a year 
uh, sales volume is unknown because Toyota has not said they're going to restrict production like Honda with the Type R. Well, here's the thing. If you had any doubts about Akio Toyota, if you ever wondered where the Morizo edition of the GR Corolla came from, that is the pseudonym that is used to compete on racetracks mm -hmm. because I guess it would be uncouth for a member <laughs> of the Toyota family to show up and like compete under his own name. I guess. Uh, and it takes the circuit model, which is the super GR Corolla, and it makes it more so. They're only going to make 200 of these Morizo editions. It gets extra mm -hmm. torque, it gets a close ratio transmission, shorter differential gear, gears, forged wheels, the stiffened chassis, uh, front brake cooling ducts, monotube shock absorbers, uh, Michelin Pilot Sport Cup 2 tires, which is insane for a Corolla. It's totally it insane. Michelin Pilot Sport 4s are the standard tire. So where do you go from there? <laughs> yeah, cup 2s. You that's go to Cup 2s. That's where you go. Um, and more impressively, it's not going to be just a limited run of only 200, period. They're going to continue to produce them. Well, that's interesting because they're pulling the rear seats. I mean, that's commitment. Once you start removing mm -hmm. seats, you're into Dodge Demon territory. Like that is the sign. Pulling the rear seats again more. And and what's interesting about the Marizo is that it's not just not just pulling the rear seats. They in, they put more chassis bracing back there. So they've got this weird hoop yes. thing that goes from one door to the other. And then that model also has yet more welds and yet more structural adhesive, et cetera. So it's it gets even more rigid in that model. Uh, and then they put limited slips, not just in the rear, but in the rear and the front as well. And you really have to realize the extent of the commitment here, because it's not like they installed a strut tower brace or some mm -hmm. thing you can order out of a GM parts catalog. They added over 300 new welds to the chassis. And all of that has to retain the underlying crash structures that got the car certified yep. with the FETs. So this is a big undertaking, like Alex said. And, you know, not for nothing, but although you can get the carbon fiber forged roof on the circuit, that comes standard on the Morizo. So it'll be yep. interesting because we also have some statistics about the Civic R that just came mm -hmm. out. A bit more power, a bit more torque. Uh, what do you know about this? Is that the extent of the change? Uh, I mean, it, it has the new platform. Honda's been a little a little cagey on some of the details. Uh, no pricing yet, but 315 horsepower, so a bit more power, a bit more torque than the GR Corolla, which you'd expect because it has a bigger engine. We know it's going to be manual transmission only, but the rumor mill says that Toyota is working on an eight-speed auto for the GR products. So that may or may not come to the U.S., but it's widely expected to launch in Japan next year. So that could be a key differentiator. No all-wheel drive in the Type R is the big problem for the Civic. And that is really going to hamper a lot of different kinds of performance driving. You will really notice the all-wheel drive difference in the GR Corolla as well as the weight balance. It definitely feels better balanced than the last generation Type R, which is really saying something. And then there's the price tag. Want to guess how much the GR Corolla is going to start? I'm, I'm going to guess the Morizo is $50,000, the Circuit's forty-five, and I guess the base, what do they call it, Core? I'm going to guess core. that it's like, it's like $37,000. Hmm. Close on some. So, you know, the uh, the Type R is widely expected to be over 38 because the previous one was just under 38. Also, I suspect lower dealer markups on the Toyota side because they're not going to be limiting production of the core model. So core is going to start at 35.9. The performance package, which is a screaming deal for limited slip diffs front and rear, is only $1,100. 1180, sorry. Uh, the cold weather package, 500 bucks. Technology package, 770 on the core model. So 
should be quite a bit less expensive than the Civic Type R, even if you add cold weather technology and the limited slips. Then we have the Circuit, which is less than you thought, 42.9. Okay. And the Marizo, it's right around what you thought, 49.5. I think these are good deals. I, I do think at some point, you know, we were talking about what is the comparable to the six-speed Supra. We start wondering whether the person who's interested in paying 50 grand for a Corolla isn't also thinking, you know what, I could get an SS1 LE Camaro for that kind of money. Like if you're going yeah. to the track and you're committing $50,000, that's a tough call to make. I think if you're if you're looking at a hot hatch in this in this genre, you're probably not thinking too much beyond a Golf R, which is going to be more expensive. Uh, or a Kona N, which is going to be a little bit less expensive, but not all-wheel drive and not as powerful. Or perhaps an AMG GLA 35, which is going to be fantastically expensive and about the same kind of power, but no manual. If you're responsible with options, you could almost get an Audi S3 for that kind of money, though I don't see them as equivalents. The Audi S3 mm -hmm. isn't going to be nearly as hardcore as the Morizo. No, no, the Audi S3 is definitely less, way less hardcore. Not any faster, interestingly, as well. So speed-wise, it's probably going to be pretty similar. Also, no manual. So that's, that's a big true. differentiator as well. Um, you know, I do love a, a nice DCT. The rumor mill, however, that's circling in Japan is saying that we're going to get an actual traditional eight-speed automatic with torque converter, a performance variant for the Yaris GR in Japan. And this is supposedly part of why the why Toyota opted for a three-cylinder engine in the GR Yaris and Corolla was to help give them extra room under the hood. So that is one thing that's impressive. Uh, the turning radius on an RS5, not great because everything is huge. I mean, the five-cylinder engine is really long. The transmission is yeah. pretty long too. Similar problem actually in the Honda Civic Type R, the previous generation. This Corolla actually turns about as tight as a regular Corolla with 245s on it because the engine is so compact that they could still make those things turn pretty sharp. Uh, so, I mean, you floor it, toss it to a curve, crank that wheel. It performs almost like an Audi, a, like a good Audi all-wheel drive system in that. There's just like a very hint uh, of, of understeer at the very beginning, and then you can get the rear end to slip out because they are sending 70% power there. I predict that every single person who orders a GR Corolla is going to get at least the circuit model. I'll be shocked how if they sell any basis. I think this is the kind of vehicle that only a kind of hardcore Japanese performance fan is going to want. I think it's a person mm -hmm. who has been playing Gran Turismo since the <laughs> 90s. Uh, who who knows yeah. all of this stuff by heart and has pined for it for years, and he's going to order the ultimate version of the car as soon as it drops. I think they're going to have. It's just like with the four cylinder Supra. No one really wants it. Yeah, I'm going to be. Wants that car wants the maximum version. I'm going to be intrigued because uh, key things to know here is that the core circuit and Marizo have the same brakes, so you don't get any brake upgrades by going up. Core Circuit and Marizo have the same limited slip differentials if you add that just about $1,200 option to the core model. So all you're really missing out on is the possibility of the carbon fiber roof, the roof vents, some styling here and there, and a few of the other lightweighting tweaks. But the, the core version is shockingly good value. And if you want that limited slip functionality, which I think everybody should get, it's, it's really shockingly inexpensive. And the ride quality on all three is strangely good because Toyota went in a very Mazda MX-5-like direction where weight was everything. 
This is likely going to be about the same kind of curb weight that we find in the Civic Type R, even though this is all-wheel drive. Um, and that really means that they didn't have to put a rock hard suspension in the vehicle. The suspension is daily driver livable. It's fairly compliant. Some might even think it actually rolls a bit too much on the track. Uh, I thought it was just fine, but uh, surprising choices there. Yeah, I think the competitor for like a core is going to be a used STI. And I think the other ones are going to be the volume sellers. The Morzo will not be the volume seller, but I think mm -hmm. the Circuit is going to be a very, very popular vehicle. I think that's the way most of them are going to be ordered. Yeah. Now, uh, Circuit trim is one year only. Really? So wh where are we after one year? Is it either Morizo and, and exactly. Core? Exactly. Wow. Morizo and Core. Yep. Wow. Okay. That surprises me because I would have thought Morizo was temporary and, and Circuit was going to be the permanent upgrade. Yeah, I think the reason is that they spent so much money developing the Marizo that they have to have it longer term to make it make sense. But it is going to be limited production every year that it's in production, but you will be able to get one 23, 24, etc. Yeah, I'm really surprised by that because you've got a choice between the entry-level model or a car without a back seat. <laughs> yep. Okay, fair. So when is availability? When can we expect to actually see a Auto Buyer's Guide test drive of one of these? Uh, you will see our first drive video on the 14th when I can talk about how it drives. Okay. We can talk about how it price, how it's pricing a little earlier. So actually, by the time you're listening to this, you will be able to see it. And then uh, you will be able to see a full, full review probably by the end of this year. They're going to be in production right around now. And then they're going to be coming to the U.S. Uh, sometime later this year. They're built in the same factory that was producing the LFA. So uh, it is a specialty production facility for low-volume Corollas. If you're talking about when was the last time Toyota did anything bonkers, that was the last time, the LFA. Yeah, but that was from Lexus, so you almost expect it. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, that was that was like the beginning of Toyota actually taking production cars and production intent prototypes to the Nürburgring and 24-hour mm -hmm. races. Like, that was the beginning of this, like, era of Toyota and Lexus performance we're in now. Yeah. That was like the first flowering of it. As I understand it, that was also Akio's project. Oh, yeah, without a doubt. I mean... I didn't know he had a pseudonym at the time, but I knew he was racing. <laughs> it's funny. The pseudonym is supposed to prevent me from knowing he's racing. Yes, but everybody knew. <laughs>
it's minuscule. And how poorly they sell. I mean, really, in the classic sense of convertible, the way most people would think of one, Mustang is the best seller. And it's not a lot. Let's put is it that, that way. Is that with fleets or without? That's with fleets. That's with fleets. With fleets, convert Mustang convertible sells the best outside of SUVs. Then, if, obviously, it's Wrangler is the best-selling convertible, period, in the U.S. because they're all convertibles, technically. And Bronco is going to be a, a close second based on its volume. And then we have Mustang kicking it into third. But the person shopping for a Wrangler is not the same traditional convertible shopper that we might think of. He's he's locked into getting a convertible. That's my point. The only way you can get it is as a convertible, and that still can't probe the numbers. And a lot of people swap in the hard tops, and we just don't know what that number is because, you know, Jeep won't tell us, right? So uh, it is is an interesting thing that, that the topless thing is just not popular, but it's far more popular in a lot of places in Europe. In England, convertibles are are two three times the volume as a segment of the market versus the united states and now think about that that's in england where it rains all the time they Mm -hmm. don't have a southern california in england what kind of surprises me is if you asked me back in the 2000s the heyday of the retractable hardtop convertible like what the future looked like for convertibles i'd be like every brand has to have one you Mm -hmm. can't not have a retractable hardtop in the lineup we saw retractable hardtops places we never imagined pontiacs chrysler's (laughs) my point is i thought that there was a bright future and it looks 20 years later like that future is mostly come and gone i i am interested to know if it's an economic thing because i i know in the 1980s and 1970s convertibles in the middle class oftentimes were thought of as weekend cars or it was that that additional car that your family didn't use necessarily every day and because vehicles are more expensive now than they were before so actual actual cost number of hours required to work to get a car is higher. I wonder if that has just meant that fewer people have that optional weekend fun vehicle. And now I need the thing that is all things to me. I need the crossover because I can't have a pickup truck and a convertible and a sedan. I can only have one. It's interesting also to see the decline of vehicles like the Mercedes SL, which was once the status symbol. Back in the 90s, you asked me what gets parked out front of the local restaurant. It's an SL 500. These mm-hmm. days, the person who would have bought an SL500 back in the 90s, if he can swing it, he goes for an AMG GT convertible or he goes for some sort of a G-Class. And True. that that's like where that buyer is aiming today. And the person who buys the SL is more like the retiree. Yes. There's definitely a perception that convertible drivers tend not to be young, despite movies <laughs> to the idea. contrary. <laughs> In the movies, everybody with a convertible is hot and has a six-pack and a blonde babe next to them. In reality, it's a 70-year-old and his fourth wife. Yes, and his third hip. Yes. Okay, so that's convertibles in general. What convertibles do we love? Like, where do we put our money if we decide to take the plunge and drop the top? Oh, that is a tricky one. I would probably have to go European. Um obviously, because there aren't very many American options. Yeah, you're not kidding. Although you could get a Challenger convertible with factory assistance now because Chrysler will not chop the top off for you, but they will send it to a shop, have them chop it off, and allow you to finance it through Chrysler Financial. But that's a that's a side one. Uh, I would probably go with a, a you know an 8 Series, something like that. Okay. I'm I've gonna... always liked BMW 6 Series. I think the transition to 8 
kind of ruined it almost, but I still like the idea of a big convertible. I also like the idea of a big convertible, but I really like the idea of a fast convertible. And this generation of Corvette is like the no compromise convertible Corvette. Because unlike previous Corvettes, like every Corvette since the C2, the Stingray in 1963, has looked incomplete without the top. It was designed mm -hmm. as a coupe from that point forward and they would chop the top. So it always had all of the aesthetic compromises of a converted coupe, even when the chassis was built from the onset to handle a convertible. This generation, the C8, has a basically a convertible top that looks like the standard coupe roof. And even the coupe has a Targa. But for me, the ability to power drop the top and mm -hmm. then raise it back up and restore the coupe roof line, the only thing you lose with the new Corvette is the panoramic view of your engine when you're standing outside the car. And yep. I can live without that. I would get the C8 convertible. And as with the Hellcat option on that new convertible custom Challenger, you can get a Z06 with the retractable hardtop on the Corvette. I think I'd skip that. That's too intense. But I'd definitely go with the standard convertible. That would be my choice, I think. Mm-hmm. That's not that's not a bad one. I think I would go for something a little bit more boulevard cruisy than than sporty. If I if I a sporty convertibles always seem a little bit silly in a way because you, you have lost at least some structural rigidity. Even if it was designed from the ground up to be a convertible, right. it's still never going to be as solid as a hard top would be. And if I'm going to do that, I might as well have something comfy. You know, it's funny because I'm thinking of convertibles now and a bunch of them are trucks. Like I'm thinking if I had no, if I didn't care about projecting like a perpetual middle finger out my window, I would maybe consider that Hummer EV because technically you can take the roof off. You True. can take four pieces of the roof off. But I think uh, it might be more fun to have a manual transmission two-door Jeep Wrangler. I guess and, there's there's the question. Do we yeah. call a T-top a convertible? I think it converts to something other than a coupe. I think so. Because I, you know, back back when there were convertibles and T tops, there was a sharp distinction. But now, since there aren't very many things that are lidless, are we just combining them together? I, I mean, I think a T top is like sufficiently a step above a sunroof or a moonroof that you can call it a convertible. Because... And since it's four pieces with a crossbeam, is this a cross top, not a T top? Yeah, I guess it's an H top. It's an X top. A, a, a... <laughs> an X top. I like the X top. A tic tac toe top, maybe. Yeah, there we go. Okay, there we go. The, the X top suitable for superheroes. That's, that's X top sounds off roady as well. That that GMC call us. We we will trademark this. You can license it from us. It's the Hummer with X top. Yeah, approved by Auto Buyers. Guys. Yes. Uh, okay. Yeah, and I think also I don't know how I forgot this, but you say you want a Boulevardy convertible Lexus LC five hundred. That's true, but I am not in the group that thinks the LC is some gorgeous, you know, angel descended from heaven. I don't think it, I don't, it doesn't want might be put my eyes out, but it also does not make me, you know, excited in that same way. It's like an Aston Martin that won't break. What's not to love? The trunk is impossibly small. The front end, although better looking than most is still strange. Uh, the taillights are cool. The interior is tiny and it's just not fast. It's okay, but it's not, fast. And if you get the hybrid, you get an even smaller area. Uh, it, yeah, just not my thing. Okay, there aren't enough, enough aren't enough customization options either. If you're spending that much cash on your convertible, you should be able to select from, you know, 50 shades of, of whatever paint job you want. You should be able to, you know, pay like Audi, pay extra five grand to have the expanded color palette at the very least. 
and I want a, a selection of wool and and other alternatives for my interior furnishings and trim and carpet and whatnot. Um, and you could get that elsewhere, but not at Lexus. Okay, well that that's that's all legit, and you're not wrong. Uh, you know, I would say this: the Mercedes SL. What's so wrong with like an SL forty three? Like that's a great cruiser. Uh, I I don't mind it, but in my in my head, an SL shouldn't have back seats. Okay, well then. And they killed it. They killed it by adding the back seats, and at that point, it should have just been big back seat, which yeah. is what we find in the eight series. You can actually put humans back there. Ooh. If the A3 convertible still existed in the U.S., I would A3 convertible because I thought that was just a really great package. It had a big back seat. It was easy to park. Um, it was a decent amount of fun to drive, and it was inexpensive. But nobody bought it, so they had to kill it. You, I can think of a car that's everything the Lexus isn't. It's not a Boulevardier, but Jaguar F-Type. I do like the F-Type. Uh, I don't know if I would want to live with Jaguar reliability at this moment. You know, it's funny. I went, and I, I went to look at pre-owned Jaguars a while back, and I was asking them about expanded warranties. And they're like, no matter what extended warranty you get, Jaguar engine warranties end at 100,000 miles. I'm sitting here thinking, like, what is this, 1995, 100,000 miles? I mean. Yeah, I mean. That's uh, a the way to an engine rebuild on, like, a Toyota. Based on their history, I would not really want to own an AMG Twin Turbo V8 or a BMW M engine much longer than 100,000 miles either. So, you know, seems fair. All right, so we we can't find a single like convertible we agree on what about miata uh no no just no fiata no okay fair enough nothing or, wrong with them just no i just wouldn't do it uh they're too slow they're slow but you know you feel like you're going fast like it's a car that only if there's a bicycle next more. to you well, that's true. I've been that guy on the bicycle, Alex. I've been that guy. <laughs> all right. Where can our friends find us online? They can find us on all of your usual social media places at Alex and Autos. You can find us over on YouTube as Alex and Autos or EV Buyer's Guide. And of course, you can find the video version of this podcast if you're watching the audio one on Auto Buyer's Guide podcast on YouTube. And if you're watching the YouTube side, you can find the audio version for your daily commute on your favorite podcasting platform. Sign off.